0: One of the lessons that the Western European so-called allies are taking from this collapse is that they don't necessarily have the military infrastructure, even if they wanted to, which many of them did to continue in Afghanistan, which bespeaks an over-reliance upon U.S. imperialism as the guarantor of world imperialism.
1: The U.S. did give them weapons, and they were weapons directed against a socialist government. And the primary thing that they were angry about with the socialist government was that it insisted that girls have a chance in the countryside, not just in Kabul, to go to school. As a matter of fact, when the socialist government sent teachers, and it sent thousands of teachers to the countryside, they were assassinated by the same Mujahideen. They were gunned down. Thousands of them were assassinated.
0: Revenge is part of the cultural DNA of U.S. imperialism. I think that there's a thirst for revenge right now. You can almost feel it. You can sense it in the highest ranks of the White House, not least. And that spells trouble for the peace lovers amongst us.
2: Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. For this hour, our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, on Afghanistan and the future of U.S. empire. Gerald spoke with Brian Becker, host of the Socialist Program podcast on August 18th, before the August 26th deadly terrorist attack at the Kabul airport that killed dozens of Afghan civilians and at least 13 members of the U.S. military. Brian has also joined us here on On the Ground as national organizer for the ANSWER Coalition, which stands for Act Now to Stop War and End Racism. Here is their conversation.
1: An amazing, amazing set of developments just in a few weeks in a way, Dr. Horn, we're all witnessing history. We had Joe Biden you know, speak on July 7th or 8th saying, this won't be like Vietnam at all. It certainly won't be people being airlifted off the roof of a U.S. embassy. It turns out he was right. It was on the helicopter pad next to the U.S. embassy in Kabul. And Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, said, This won't be anything fast. I don't see anything happening between a Friday and a Monday when literally Kabul fell on a Sunday. Anyway, there's the issue of how it was presented by Biden. That's important. And of course, Biden is taking a lot of hits for that. But Biden basically has acknowledged something that the U.S. presidents who came before him since 2001 have refused to acknowledge, which was that the U.S. has defeated in Afghanistan. Anyway, let's start there, get your take, and then I want to put this into a broader context if we could. Well, first of all, the wider question is this.
0: Is this a Suez moment for U.S. imperialism? Recall what transpired in 1956 when Britain, France, and Israel attacked Nasser's Egypt because of the latter's attempt to reclaim sovereignty over the Suez Canal. It was U.S. imperialism that issued warnings to those three piratical regimes, in addition to the then-Soviet Union, more pointedly, which marked the eclipsing of the British Empire. Uh, London made the decision that the jig was up, that it had to hide behind the skirts of U.S. imperialism in order to survive as a neo-imperialist power. France took an opposing position, deciding that U.S. imperialism was not necessarily reliable as a guarantor of world imperialism. And Israel, of course, took a position much closer to that of Britain. But at the end of the day, I think that France, France's position in 1956 is still relevant because this defeat marked I guess, on August 15th, 2021, uh, may signal the precipitous decline of U.S. imperialism, not least because its role as a guarantor of world imperialism has been called into question. Uh, Washington has come under withering fire from Armin Laschet, who is a member of Chancellor Merkel's party in Germany, and is tipped by the Christian Democrats to be her successor, uh, he called this event in Afghanistan the most serious debacle that NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, ostensibly headed by Washington, has ever experienced. And that's saying something, given the number of fiascos that NATO has presided over. This defeat in Afghanistan comes as a worrying signal to President Macron, who in about eight months faces the French electorate, Now, of course, uh, Paris, per 1956, had the foresight to withdraw its troops from Afghanistan a few years ago. But nonetheless, uh, France too will be splattered by the mud emerging from this U.S. defeat in Afghanistan. And recently, just this week, you heard Theresa May, the former British Prime Minister excoriate her successor, Boris Johnson, for the shambolic approach of London. In Afghanistan, uh, Britain, per its usual role as the sidekick of U.S. imperialism, contributed a significant number of troops to this misadventure, and it was quite startling to see on television just a few days ago, Ben Wallace, who is the British equivalent of the chief of the pentagon who virtually broke into tears when contemplating what would befall british allies in Kabul as britain was forced to pull out now one of the lessons that the western european so-called allies are taking from this collapse is that they don't necessarily have the military infrastructure even if they wanted to which many of them did to continue in Afghanistan, which bespeaks an over-reliance upon U.S. imperialism as the guarantor of world imperialism, but it's apparent, it's evident that it's going to be exceedingly difficult for Washington to play that role going forward, and as the Chinese media suggested to Taiwan just a few days ago, the Taiwanese leadership should draw conclusions from the U.S. collapse in Afghanistan. That is to say, if the United States could not hold off the Taliban with RPGs and AK-47s, how are they going to hold off the People's Republic of China if it decides to reclaim what it considers to be its rightful territory in Taiwan? However, I think it's premature for anti-imperialists to uncork the bottles of champagne. And I say that because We all know that the Taliban as a force was basically created by U.S. imperialism in league with Pakistani military and Pakistani intelligence. And I dare say that as we speak, there are those in the bowels of the CIA and the Pentagon who are trying to concoct a strategy whereby the U.S. and the Taliban kiss and make up and then go after mutual real and imagined antagonists. Speaking of Iran on the western border of Afghanistan, which we know is in the crosshairs, which we know that the Israel lobby considers to be public enemy number one. Indeed, within the last 10 days or so, I expected the United States and Israel to attack Iran for various spurious uh, reasons. And then we know that China and Afghanistan share a 47-mile border. There hangs a tale because, I'm afraid to say, that after the United States began to intervene, interfere in the internal affairs of Afghanistan under Jimmy Carter in the late 1970s and his hawkish national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, in order to drag the Soviet Union into a Vietnam-style quagmire, I'm afraid to say that the People's Republic of China, believe it or not, collaborated with U.S. imperialism. And I'm also afraid to say that historians of the future may be stunned to find that many of our friends on the U.S. left also stood and cheered as the United States entered into this diabolical marriage of convenience with these religious zealots. However, the worm may have turned and we should not rule out the possibility that the Taliban government, assuming that it does not fall itself, which I don't think we can rule out either, that it will collaborate with U.S. imperialism with regard to the uh, unrest in Western China that has been stirred up. And of course, the Taliban in a leadership delegation to Beijing a few weeks ago. They pledged not to do so, but I take that as seriously as I take the Taliban's pledge this week to allow women's rights, of course, within the framework of so-called Sharia law. And then, of course, there's Russia, which is obviously uh, still viewed as an antagonist by NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization led by Washington, across the border from Afghanistan or both Tajikistan and Uzbekistan. And we should not rule out the possibility that the Taliban regime will try to once again draw Russia into a quagmire. And in that context, note that perhaps the most vicious and bloodthirsty allies of the Taliban is the so-called Haqqani Network, which makes many leaders of the Taliban seem like choir boys by comparison. The Haqqani Network has at the top many Uzbeks, which is a commentary. Insofar as we all recall that during the days of the Soviet Union, Uzbekistan was a constituent socialist republic, but with the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, you saw, as you saw all around the world, the retreat of the socialist project and the rise of various kinds of religious extremism, not only in Kabul, but also in Uzbekistan itself. Speaking of the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, it's also worth noting that after the Soviets intervened and then they were pushed out by this diabolical relationship between religious zealots in Washington, pushed out in 1989, you had the last left-leaning leader in Kabul, speaking of Najibullah who was able to hold on to power for more than two years, almost three years, until the sellout regime in Moscow of Boris Yeltsin pulled the plug on aid, and that led to the surging to power of the religious zealots, and I'm afraid to say the lynching, Negro style of Najibullah, in addition he was castrated, also Negro style, and if you can stomach it, you can go online and see these gruesome images. And that also is a commentary because it's striking that the Ghani regime basically collapsed not, what, days before the United States' final pullout, supposedly on August 31st, 2021. So this is a very despicable episode in the inglorious history of U.S. imperialism. It may mark a turning point in terms of the precipitous decline of U.S. imperialism. But once again, we cannot rule out the possibility of yet another marriage of convenience between the Taliban and Washington.
1: Very, very interesting and very important, Gerald. I want to give a little bit more in terms of historical context so that we can come back to your original points here for our audience Many of whom may be young enough that they don't know some of this history. And certainly, if they're Americans and trying to get any history from either school or from the media, not succeeding on those fronts either. At the end of the Vietnam War, and there are a lot of comparisons now to the end of the Vietnam War and what's just happened in Afghanistan and in Kabul, but that was late April. 1975. Now, if you go back to that period in the few years after that, you had the US defeated in Vietnam, defeated in Cambodia, defeated in Laos. The Portuguese revolution happens in 1974, a revolution against the fascist regime, the Salazar regime. That in turn had been you know, stimulated by the national liberation movements in Guinea-Bissau, in Angola, in Mozambique those revolutions also eventually in the mid 1970s take power there's the revolution in Ethiopia in 1974 and an even more left wing takeover of the government in 1977 with the derg and mengistu then we have the Afghanistan revolution 1978 the Saur revolution in 1979 the Shah the US Besides Israel, the U.S., other proxy, principal proxy in the Middle East, and the CIA listening post toppled by a people's revolution. The Sandinistas come to power in July 1979. When you look at that five year period, and I know you are very, you know, part of all of that which was going on, observing it, writing about it, talking about it, being a progressive activist yourself during that time period. If you look at that period and we think back, there were a lot of people thinking, this is it. This is the eclipse of the US empire. But then the right wing sort of mounted a counteroffensive and you had the campaign of a present danger, 160 retired generals and admirals taking out ads in the New York Times and the rise of Ronald Reagan and the doubling of the military budget and the full court press against the Soviet Union. And, And 10 years later, Partly as a consequence of US aggression, partly as a consequence of the Sino-Soviet split and the fact that China was brought in as an ally, which I think had a very demoralizing impact on others in the socialist camp. Well, anyway, as a consequence of all of that, instead of the empire being eclipsed or the decline going into a another sort of, you know, important dynamic element of deterioration. The U.S. got back on its feet, and it was their enemies, the socialist camp that went down. I'm saying all this because I want to go back to your original point. Does this mark sort of a 1956 Suez moment, the decline of the British and the French? Does this mark really something like that for the United States? You're suggesting it might, and when you think about how the U.S. media is presenting this, all of the you know, the key players within the U.S. imperial establishment, and I include the New York Times or the Washington Post in that establishment, they're also well aware that this could be a pivotal moment, a turning point, a moment that we look back on and say, yes, this is that 1956 Suez type moment. But aware of that and also aware of how they overcame the earlier seeming decline of the empire, which was to accelerate the aggression against the Soviet Union It comes clear to me that what you're also suggesting, that there might be a turn now accelerating the aggression against China and even using the Taliban as a partner. So here's the New York Times, Professor Horn. Here's the headline from this morning. To China, Afghan fall proves U.S. hubris. It also brings new dangers. And then the first sentence The Taliban's return to power is no victory for Beijing, which faces the threat of extremism and an American military no longer bogged down by the, quote, war on terror, close quote. In other words, they're putting the war on terror within quotes. So it speaks, in fact, directly to what you're suggesting that the United States, and I include by the United States, the New York Times editorial board, Thinking about the geostrategic possibilities for the U.S. to escape the possibility of decline and accelerating the quote extremism, meaning what's going on in Xinjiang, and of course, the Uyghurs are part of the Uyghurs or the East Turkestan independence movement, who are just like the Taliban and who are considered to be freedom fighters by the West, uh, working with the Taliban and also suggesting that the U.S., free from being bogged down in Afghanistan, can focus now on a bigger target. Anyway, I'm just providing a little bit more context for our audience and then let you come back and give us your thoughts. Well, that's a distinct
0: possibility, which is why I flag the possible reimagination or reigniting of the Taliban-U.S. relationship. Because we need to realize that Washington finds it very difficult to break up altogether with these religious zealots. I mean, as we speak, there are ties between U.S. imperialism and religious zealots in Syria, for example. We know about the continuing relationship between U.S. imperialism and Saudi Arabia, which, of course, was a major funder of the Taliban and was one of the few governments along with Pakistan and United Arab Emirates who actually recognized the Pakistan regime back in the 1990s, despite the knowledge that we have accumulated concerning the Saudis slaying murder of a Washington Post journalist at the Turkish consulate in Istanbul, speaking of Jamal Khashoggi and the denunciation of same by Mr. Biden, the relationship continues. In fact, you know that the families who suffered losses on September 11, 2001, demanded that Mr. Biden not show up to the 20th anniversary commemoration within days unless he disgorged documents concerning the Saudi role on 9-11, and apparently, Mr. Biden has acceded, although I have not seen the documents, but we know that 15 of the 19 hijackers were of Saudi origin on September 11, 2001. We know that there had to have been cooperation with the U.S. authorities for many high-level Saudis to leave the United States in the days following September 11. We know about the close relationship between the then-Saudi envoy to Washington, speaking of Prince Bandar, a close friend of Mr. George W. Bush, to the point where he was oftentimes referred to as Bandar Bush. And in fact, his private plane was painted in the colors, silver and blue, of his favorite football team, the Dallas Cowboys, who of course are headquartered in the hometown, or at least the present hometown of Mr. George W. Bush. And so it's almost as if this relationship between Washington and religious zealots is reminiscent of the line from the Oscar winning film, Brokeback Mountain, where one character says to another, I just can't quit you, and Washington just seemingly cannot quit its relationship with these religious zealots, and that's something we need to explore. I think it's for a number of reasons. One... They're so useful in terms of being willing to shed blood, being willing to fight as the Taliban fought over the past 20 years. And then I don't think we should ignore the theological bond. We should not be overly surprised that the ruling elite, particularly the political ruling elite in Washington, which is heavily suffused, with Christian fundamentalism of uh, find something simpatico with Islamic fundamentalism or for that matter Hindu fundamentalism speaking of India and in some ways what's happening is as even bourgeois commentators have suggested a turning back of the clock but I think that the clock may be in the process of being turned back if we're not careful in ways that could be catastrophic, particularly for our movement.
2: And that is activist and author Professor Gerald Horn speaking to activist Brian Becker. This is On the Ground. Now back to the conversation.
0: We all know that since October, 1917, the Miradons of world imperialism have been trying to undermine the socialist project, the class-based project. And obviously these religious zealots, as we've just articulated, were very useful in that regard. But if you go all the way back to the 1500s, as I did in my book on the 16th century, you'll see that the shards of an emergent capitalism emerged precisely in the context of religious wars, not only between Christians and Muslims, particularly the Ottoman Turks in the latter instance, but between Christians and the Jewish minority in Europe, and also, most pointedly, between Protestants and Catholics. And what happens is that the Protestants, the feisty underdogs, the scrappy underdogs, move away from the religious sectarianism of Catholic Spain, which had a first-mover's advantage sponsoring Christopher Columbus, and move towards the pestilence of race, which then suffers a setback with the withering blow administered by the Haitian Revolution, 1791-1804, to leading to the demise of the slave project in the Americas, and which provides propulsive speed for the emergence of the class project, not only in the Americas, but worldwide, which, of course, leads to 1917. And then, of course, we have the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. So with this resurgence of this religious fundamentalism, we may be on the cusp, contrary to what I just articulated with regard to a Suez moment, of a resurgence of a more backwards imperialism, grounded in this relationship with religious fundamentalism, and we're going to have to be on our guard with regard to that. Now, there's one more point I would like to add before I hand back the microphone to you, Brian, and that is that what we saw in Afghanistan and this counter-revolutionary surge that we witnessed in recent decades, we should also be at pains to note But it also afflicted the United States of America itself. We all know about the Red Scare, the Smith Act, the McCarran Act, the panoply of anti-communist legislation, which wounded severely the socialist left, the Marxist left, which in turn led to the rise of neoliberal forces and led to the rise of this religious fundamentalism, particularly the Christian fundamentalists that I've just made reference to. And it's possible to suggest that despite the mighty struggles of many of us, both today and yesterday, the U.S. left has yet to recover from those sledgehammer blows administered during the Red Scare. And so, obviously, we're going to have to step up our game on the U.S. left, if we are to prevent the possibility that I've just sketched and outlined of a resurgent U.S. imperialism, but this time with a more toxic and backward
1: formula than any of us could have ever imagined. Right. I couldn't agree with you more, because what you're basically helping us understand, Professor Horn, is that as we observe historical trends and patterns, the contradictory phenomena that exist right in front of us, we recognize that the outcome is not a given. It can go this way, or it can go that way. And what people do, and by people, I mean the left, what we do, what the genuine left does, will make fundamentally all the difference. Our goal here is not simply to observe the trends, but to be well-informed people who, with the information and the analysis and the assessment that we have, use those as tools to act. And I think it's so vitally important what you're saying, that the imperial empire, the empire in crisis here, we have the United States, the only empire that refuses to call itself an empire, but is an empire nonetheless. It is in crisis. It could be in sharp decline. It could and will try to find ways to move against that, perhaps to, as they did in the 1980s, to redirect their earlier failures by accelerating the struggle against, in the case of the 1980s, the Soviet Union. In the case of today, maybe China and Russia, or China, Russia, and Iran, to deflect it. And also for us to recognize that Society isn't simply a static or stable entity that there are competing trends and the left has to compete and the left has to provide persuasive, class-based, anti-imperialist arguments and motivation such that it is compelling and persuasive to people who are in crisis so that those same forces aren't sort of dragooned into right-wing religiosity or other right-wing movements. And I think we are, and we can see that the one thing this situation is not right now is stable. And so in the moment of instability, what people do, meaning the left, could be all important. I want to play for the audience. It's an audio clip of Dan Rather 40 years ago. We played it the other day on one of our earlier shows about Afghanistan, but some people listen to one episode and not the other. So I want to replay it because It gives the audience of today a sense of how tied the U.S. was to the religious extremist movements that were fighting against socialism at the beginning of 1980 and certainly starting in 1978 when the Afghan revolution happened. Dan Rather, just so everyone knows, younger people won't know, that Dan Rather wasn't simply Walter Cronkite's replacement at CBS and not simply just another elite media personality. He was considered to be a liberal. He was considered to be one of the liberals from the media elite back when liberalism was actually a thing. So I want people to now listen to this audio clip. This is about Dan Rather, about Afghanistan, talking about the Mujahideen, so-called, led by certainly one of their principal leaders, led by, at that time, none other than Osama bin Laden. Let's listen.
0: We were smuggled into Afghanistan by a young Mujahideen. Mujahideen, the Muslim word for freedom fighter, or fighter in a holy war. In this case, as the Mujahideen see it, a holy war against the Soviets. A war, they say, that if they get weapons from us or anyone else in the free world, they will win.
1: Well, they got plenty of weapons. They got lots of weapons. They got lots of money. They got support from Saudi Arabia, from Pakistan, but most importantly, from the CIA. And the CIA undertook at that time, 1978, 79, 80, and then into the 80s, what was up until that time the largest covert operation by the CIA ever up until that time. And again, just remember everybody who's listening, these are the same forces that attacked the World Trade Center. They, you know, The U.S. did give them weapons, and they were weapons directed against a socialist government. And the primary thing that they were angry about with the socialist government was that it insisted that girls have a chance in the countryside, not just in Kabul, to go to school. As a matter of fact, when the socialist government sent teachers, and it sent thousands of teachers to the countryside to help start schools for girls, they were assassinated by the same Mujahideen. They were gunned down. Thousands of them were assassinated. And this is who the U.S. blocked with because more important than the fight against any other entity, including Mujahideen led by Osama bin Laden, was the existential fight of the capitalist governments and the capitalist media that support them, that act as their echo chamber, against that which is really their enemy, which, of course, would be socialism. Anyway, Dr. Horn, I think if people, if this was put back on CBS, that was on 60 Minutes, the clip I played from Dan Rather, people would be pretty shocked right now.
0: Well, I recall that episode on 60 Minutes with Dan Rather dressed up in the garb of a Mujahideen. I also recall Zbigniew Brzezinski, the hawkish national security advisor uh, Jimmy Carter in the company of the so-called freedom fighters pointing a weapon at a presumed Soviet fighter who were opposing those who came to be called terrorists, then called freedom fighters, freedom fighters being a term applied to them by one Ronald Wilson Reagan, who of course entertained many of the so-called mujahideen in the Oval Office, before they turned with a vengeance against u.s imperialism but there's another factor that we need to contemplate other than this relationship this alliance this marriage of convenience between religious zealotry in washington in terms of explaining events over recent decades another signal factor have been rifts for example in the united states itself various rifts in the 1950s whereby the american civil liberties union and the naacp they joined the anti-communist crusade against those to their left and now you can draw a straight line from their role their scurrilous role in weakening an overall progressive movement to the insurrection of january 6 which I'm afraid to say, is bound to be repeated in 2024, if not before, if we're not careful. But it wasn't just a U.S. phenomenon. Recall that it's in terms of the litany of successes that we were making reference to just a moment or two ago. Another was the triumph of the Grenada Revolution, 1979, which then was squashed by an invasion of U.S. imperialism in October, 1983 which was facilitated by a rift in the ruling party between the two top leaders, Morris Bishop and Bernard Court, which set the stage for the liquidation of the Grenada revolution, which in many ways was echoed in what used to be called the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen or Southern Yemen, headquartered in Aden on the Red Sea, I recall that the then ruling Socialist Party split to the point where at Central Committee meetings, the two factions would come armed, and there would be shootouts within the Central Committee. Now, before the alert listeners point out the obvious, which is the role of the Central Intelligence Agency and U.S. operatives in fomenting this split, let me now bring up exhibit A, which is the split in the People's Democratic Party in Afghanistan, which helped to accelerate these negative trends when it was finally ousted in the early 1990s, as already noted, almost from its inception, the PDP had two wings. And U.S. imperialism, of course, tried to play upon those contradictions. So one of the messages I think that listeners should take away from this discussion is to be alert to the virus of factionalism, to not on the other hand, try to squash democratic debate but to always be aware and alert that our enemies and antagonists are always trying to foment discord in our ranks. That's how they remain in power and I should would be remiss as well if I did not mention that we're already being told that many religious zealots outside of the vicinity of Afghanistan are celebrating the victory of the Taliban. Indeed, I think it's fair to say that this victory of the Taliban will be bad news for Nigeria, which is fighting an insurgency in the north. It'll be bad news for the Sahel, the region stretching from Mauritania in the west all the way across the continent through Mali and Niger and Chad and Sudan, etc., which is also fighting an insurgency of religious zealots, uh, not to mention northern Mozambique, which has a similar problem, which has necessitated an intervention by neighbors, particularly South Africa, which has its own problems, and also faraway Rwanda has sent troops to northern Mozambique. We should also mention that right here in the United States, there are now news reports that the ultra-right in the United States, including QAnon, including white supremacists, including those who contribute to the 4chan internet site, are all popping the champagne bottles, celebrating the rise of the Taliban, because they feel that it shows that U.S. imperialism is ready to be taken out by themselves, which, of course, was one of the messages We should have taken away, I'm afraid to say, from January 6, 2021.
2: For this hour, we are featuring on the grounds geopolitical analyst Professor Gerald Horan speaking to activist Brian Becker. Now, back to their conversation.
1: It's really important right now because there's a there's a thesis that exists in one part of what I would call the anti-imperialist movement, which is, in essence, my enemy's enemy is my friend. And so if there are people on the right who are also critics of U.S. imperialism or the U.S. state that we can find common cause with them. Now, I'm not talking about a rank and file worker. You're at work and somebody's conservative and you're a leftist and you want to win over the worker next to you and recruit them into having a better way of looking at the world. I'm talking about people who actually think right-wing forces who are attacking the establishment writ large from the right. I mean, I'm talking about the extreme right, but because they have an anti-establishment position can somehow be like partners. I don't think this is a dominating sort of trend, but I do think it exists within some sectors of anti-imperialist movements. And I think it's profoundly wrong, again, not talking about how to talk to an individual worker who might have right-wing or conservative political views, but about this larger constellation of political forces. Because as we could see, Dr. Horn, there was an anti-war sentiment before World War II in the United States, perhaps it was even a majority sentiment, but it was led by anti establishment forces in America who were really pro Nazi. And I think what we saw on January 6th and what we see with the three percenters and the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, you know, whatever the new iteration was of the Nazis and the KKK, the David Dukes given the history of this country and the deep roots that they have in what would be considered to be establishment politics meaning white supremacy it's not a small issue in terms of a progressive outlook and anyway i want to get your thoughts on that because i think it's very what we're talking about here is the importance of the political program the importance of the political orientation rather than simply sort of relationships of convenience. Anyway, I'll get your thoughts and then I have one follow-up question for you.
0: Well, obviously, what you're describing bespeaks the desperation of some who consider themselves to be anti imperialist It also bespeaks a poverty of imagination of historical reflection insofar as if they truly understand And understood the history of the country in which they're struggling, uh, they would not be so ridiculous as to suggest a so-called red-brown alliance. Is a term I've heard described, with the red being the left and the brown being the neo fascist And I think it also bespeaks a narrowness and a reflection. I'm afraid to say. How certain anti-imperialists, in many ways, are unmasking their own white supremacy, insofar as the ranks of the brown, so to speak, these neo-fascists, as January 6 suggested, are overwhelmingly Euro-Americans, and many of them, of course, are not part of the one percent, but. They should ask themselves those who espouse such relationships how do they think that particularly their black brothers and sisters will react to alliances with rank white supremacists as opposed to covert white supremacists and aren't they just turning their backs upon the community that is most open to voting in a left-leaning direction most open to supporting union drives on behalf of pursuing this will of the wisp that somehow you can persuade these fascists to join your vanguard leadership role in attacking the 1% and the U.S. willing elite. As a matter of fact, just articulating that even though I'm trying to indicate by the tone of my voice how ludicrous I think it sounds. But I'm just staggered that I have to say such a thing at such a late stage of the game.
1: Yeah, I I hear you on that. And again, I think it's a minor trend. I don't think it's a dominant trend. And I think it's been given birth in some ways by people making commentary, you know, essentially commentary online where everyone is doing hot takes on this or that, people who are really organizing, you know, what you're saying is the most important thing. If you're going to present any sort of progressive movement in the United States, that's premised on a couple elements. One is black leadership in almost all cases, when one looks back at American history, a multiracial movement with black leadership. And, the idea that you could have any sort of anything but absolute war against white supremacy or against anybody espousing that, then you just have to figure, well, people are not really doing organizing because real organizing would require those kind of politics. And by real organizing, I mean the organizing that has been dominant for progressive and left forces for the last century, certainly, and and even well before the last century. Dr Horn again we don't know we don't have a crystal ball we don't know what's coming but you are helping us understand patterns and also to recognize that there are moments in history which do become pivots historical pivots like a moment where something either changes or a change that's already happened is revealed you know more clearly revealed more clearly understood and again it's such a stunning defeat for the United States in Afghanistan, not because we're supporters of the Taliban, but the whole premise, the calculations, when you think back to the last 20 years, and here we are, I'm in New York City, I'm in midtown Manhattan, I'm at the People's Forum at the moment. But at the time of September 11th, I lived not too far from the World Trade Center. I had friends who were inside the World Trade Center. That sort of pivotal moment. Uh, In U.S. history, where for a week or two, maybe a month, George W. Bush had ninety percent approval rating. He was kind of rescued from his, you know, people basically thinking he had stolen the White House in the election in two thousand. He had this approval rating, and they were absolutely determined to take advantage of that to go to war. Not really about Afghanistan so much, but it was going to be war against Iraq and then war against Syria against the resistance forces in Lebanon and against Libya and in Somalia and the big prize being Iran but they had to sort of check the box first by having this sort of half-hearted invasion of Afghanistan thinking this would be you know easy low-hanging fruit take out the Taliban disperse them and then get on with it and they had to check that box because Osama bin Laden did have guest status in Afghanistan, even though the Taliban certainly were not in on the attack and didn't support the attack on September 11th. They had to check a box. But here we are, 20 years later, the U.S. has spent two and a half trillion dollars. It built an army, it said, was 300,000 strong. As Joe Biden said on July 7th, we paid their salaries. We didn't just buy the equipment. And the U.S. has been defeated in Afghanistan. It was defeated in Iraq. I mean, it wasn't defeated in Libya, but it succeeded in Libya and created an ocean of misery, but it didn't create a stable puppet government in Libya. It just got rid of the old government of Gaddafi. When you look at the last 20 years, everything the U.S. has done has basically failed when it comes to these wars of aggression, and now they're like, let's turn towards China. I mean, if you can't defeat the Taliban, if you can't defeat the resistance forces in Iraq... But now the U.S. is about to turn towards China. I mean, the sort of logic and mentality, the sickness of American capitalism and its addiction to militarism and war, it means ultimately that it's an empire that must decline because that's not enough. That's not enough, especially when you think of the mismanagement of COVID, massive and growing inequality and poverty for some while the billionaires get richer. And then you have all of these failures. I mean, you can't but come to the conclusion that if this isn't the pivot, the pivotal moment is coming. Your point is
0: well taken, and I think we'd be remiss if we did not elaborate on one of the points you made in passing, which is how through mostly bad times, the so-called defense contractors, as the saying goes, have made out like bandits. Boeing, Raytheon, all the rest. And I think it's important for us to unpack this notion about US spending, as Mr. Biden was articulating in his speech of August 16th, reprimanding and rebuking his Afghan, erstwhile Afghan comrades about how much the United States has spent. But basically, what happens is that most of that money comes back into the pockets of people in the United States. Now, admittedly, you'll see. Taliban forces driving around in Humvees and trying to fly the aircraft, etc. But a lot of this so-called military spending is just one more way to transfer the national income into the pockets of the one percent. And I think that increasingly the so-called Western European allies of the United States recognize that, which is one of the reasons. Why another point we should be alert to is what has been embodied in French foreign policy since Suez, 1956, to come back to where we began, which is to say that Western Europe, that is to say the European Union, should develop its own military independent, not only of U.S. imperialism, but independent of NATO itself. And that's the import of a little-known organization the Western European Union, which is a kind of NATO absent United States and Canada, and perhaps absent Britain as well. And that could lead to a further internecine conflict between the leading imperialist powers and those who are students of the 20th century recognize and realize how past internecine and imperialist struggles erupted. And... If you don't remember let me remind you of what happened during world war ii which not only involved the soviet union aligning with one wing of the imperialist camps begin the united states and britain but then you had germany and japan and so this impending rift if that's what it is between the western european nations led by france and the united states is something we're going to have to keep an eye on and likewise we have to keep an eye on the ruling class right here in the united states now I'm sure many of your listeners have been following the formation of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. It's funded by George Soros and the Koch brothers, or the remaining Koch brother. It styles itself as being a critic of U.S. foreign policy, a critic of the blob, to use the phrase of Ben Rhodes, the former Obama speech writer, which you can see on a regular, if not minute-to-minute basis on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, right now, despite the evolution of this Quincy Institute, which supposedly is the left wing of the U.S. ruling class on foreign policy, let me point listeners to a remarkable op-ed that appeared in the Wall Street Journal just this past Saturday, pinned by one George Soros, the bugaboo of Fox News and the bugaboo of the right wing, which was a fire-breathing attack on the People's Republic of China. And there lies the rub because what helps to bring together various wings of the 1%, various wings of the U.S. ruling class is this attack on the People's Republic of China. And I dare say that even those U.S. corporations that are heavily invested in China, speaking of Apple, Microsoft, General Motors, Starbucks, all the rest that they're going to be hammered in line it appears and as they say on Wall Street may have to take a haircut that is to say sacrifice some profits and investments because this new Cold War is serious and just as post 1975 the defeat in Vietnam US imperialism came back with a vengeance in part because it wanted revenge revenge is part of the cultural DNA of US imperialism. I think that there's a thirst for revenge right now. You can almost feel it, you can sense it in the highest ranks of the White House, not least. And that spells trouble for the peace lovers amongst us.
2: And Professor Gerald Horn on the ground's geopolitical analyst, will have the last word on today's show. He was in conversation August 18th with Brian Becker, host of the socialist program with Brian Becker, which is found on all your podcast platforms and SoundCloud. And of course, Brian has also joined us here on on the ground as national organizer for the answer coalition, which stands for act now to stop war and end racism. This is on the ground on the ground voices of resistance from the nation's capital. You can also like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook and Twitter. And thank you to all our supporters on patreon.com at On the Ground Show for your encouragement. The podcast On the Ground with Esther Averam is also on all your podcast platforms. The music we played this hour included What Rough beast by the Burnt Sugar Orchestra, Jelly's Debeaner by Robert Glasper, and our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Please enjoy upcoming rebroadcasts as we take a brief break from our weekly production schedule. But keep raising your voice out there. Peace. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience and I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash on the ground show. Or you can see all the ways to support, including end of the year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is on Thank you.